This is the word of the living God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered or reckoned or counted him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's go before this God who's prepared a city for us, a, a heavenly homeland, a better country, and ask him to bless his word. Our Father and our God, you who are the reward of your people, we would ask now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother, the one who is the Lord our righteousness, the one in whom all the promises that you've ever made, Father, are yes and amen. We come clothed in Christ, asking in Christ, not as slaves, but as sons who've been given the Holy Spirit that cry out within us, Abba, Father. Oh, Father, we are hungry for the bread of life. Feed us, Christ. May I decrease, may you increase, and may the church be equipped. And may she fulfill all that you've called her to be and to do in this world, in this wilderness of this world, as we wait for the great hope of this better country that will come when Christ returns. We pray and we would ask this in his name. Amen. Beloved, the, the saints that we have looked, for, looked at thus far in Hebrews 11 were saints who took, good, took, who took God at his word. Were they perfect? By no means. Far from it. They were full of doubts and sins. We just read the narratives themselves. They, they don't withhold and hide any of the blemishes of the saints, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs particularly. But if we had asked any of those saints, those patriarchs particularly, what they desired and longed for in this life, they would have given the same answer, that they, they longed for a better country, a homeland, a heavenly one, not meaning non-spiritual, physical, but eternal. They longed for the, the city of God, the, the new heavens and new earth. They longed for the new Jerusalem that God promises his bride. You see, the reality of God and his city looms so large in their thinking that it, it shaped everything about them. Their ambitions, their decisions, their, their loves, their longings. All their hopes were set on getting safely to God's holy city. Their hearts were not set on the hollow vanities and the fading glory of this world, but on the eternal glory 
of the living triune God. Beloved, for Abraham, as it was for all the saints, God was his own reward. He was the treasure that Abraham was willing to sell all that he had that he might possess this treasure. He had tasted of God. He met with God. He experienced God. And God was real to him. The eternal, the invisible, was more real than what he currently saw in this life, in this world. And he was ruined, as the hymn writer said. Once you've tasted of those heavenly realities, it ruins you for this world. Because you've tasted of God, you've tasted of his word and the goodness of his kingdom. And as we sit here this morning on January 7th, 2024, can you believe it? 2024, on the cusp of a new year, let me ask you, what will will be the focus of your desires this year? And before you rush to answer that question, maybe we should ask ourselves the following. Does my life this morning reflect the priority of my desires? Can others discern from how I conduct myself in this world, in this life, in exile, particularly how I spend my money and how I spend my time? That I, like Abraham, am characterized as one who, while imperfect, doubting and struggling, plodding along imperfectly, that we desire God, we desire his city and his blessings above everything else in life. You see, for many, the Christian life is viewed primarily in the terms of the past, terms of when we first became a Christian. I professed my faith in 2020, or I became a communicant member in 2017. You see, for many, they view the Christian life solely in terms of when they actually became a Christian. But if the book of Hebrews teaches us anything, it teaches us the reality that the Christian, when he becomes a Christian, when he is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he's translated from the first Adam to the last Adam, from the kingdom of darkness to light, when he goes from death to life, he embarks or she embarks on a journey, a a pilgrimage, a walk of faith. You see, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's the assurance and substance that is faith of deeds and things hoped for, conviction of things not yet seen, things that we set our heart on in the future, as it were. Things that God has promised to us in the future. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 helps us see our faith as a journey, as a pilgrimage. And I'd like to look at it under these three headings this morning. Pilgrim faith transcends or overcomes the grave. The grave, our death, the the great equalizer of all men and women, boys and girls. Faith transcends the grave. Secondly, pilgrim faith lives as an exile in this world. This world is not our home. We're, We're present here. Though seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus simultaneously, we have a dual citizenship while presently residing here. 
we know that this world, this metrics, matrix rather, this fallen present evil age is not our home. And then thirdly, pilgrim faith seeks a better country. So it transcends the grave. Pilgrim faith lives as an exile in this world. And thirdly, pilgrim faith seeks a better country, a better homeland, a, a heavenly one. So first, let's look, a pilgrim faith transcends the grave. Verse 13, notice what he says there in the word of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Well, who are these all? Well, the preceding immediate context suggests that the writer, the preacher, here is referring to the patriarchs, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you could throw Sarah in there, if you will. But I will say this, that, that the truth conveyed here could be applied to every believer in the totality of God's word. We're told that they all died in faith, still believing, but not yet having all that God, all the fullness that God had promised them. They had set their hopes on something not yet realized in this life. And we're told that they, they saw and they greeted them from afar. From afar here, it's, it's like this in the Greek. In the original, it's, it's like a traveler who's, who's left his hometown to go out and endeavor on great travel and great travel throughout the world and yet returns home. And on the horizon, as he approaches home, he sees the city on the horizon. That's the picture here. They greeted and saw the reality of the promises God had made from afar. Beloved, Abraham was promised children as numerous as the stars in heaven, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And while Abraham did see God give him a son through the womb of Sarah, the descendants as stars, like the possession of the land of Canaan, were not realized in his lifetime. You see, Abraham died in faith, hoping and longing for the realization, for the, for the absolute fulfillment of all that God had promised. Now, if we sit here and we just take a time out and we pause and we say, we honestly look at the text, we say, well, that's not very commendable. That's not going to commend the faith to me to set your heart on something and then not have it come to fruition. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, says the word of God. But beloved, the saints of old trusted God, yet they died without having received all that God had promised. This reminds us, does it not, that, that Christianity, while affirming the goodness of God in this life and the goodness of God in creation, right, we're creation affirming folk. It's not a religion that's primarily focused on the here and now. This is why Paul encourages believers over and over again to set their minds on things above, where your lives are hidden in Christ, not on the things of the earth. Jesus as well. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Why? 
Because treasures on the earth are destroyed by rust and moth. Thieves break in and steal those treasures. But lay up for yourselves. Right? He, he's giving us an imperative. Don't do it here. Don't lay it up here. Lay it up in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see, biblical Christianity, when we rightly understand it, flies in the face of those who peddle a view of the faith that promises you your best life now. That if you trust Jesus, you'll you'll have a better marriage. You'll have more friends. Maybe, maybe not. You have a better career. You'll have more money and so forth. And, And while God in his grace may give you all these things and more, the New Testament is clear that the believer's primary blessings in life are spiritual in nature. This morning I had the grand opportunity to sit through the teaching through Ephesians. And I was reminded as the teacher went over and reminded us of the the blessings that we have primarily in Jesus Christ are spiritual in nature. Chapter 1, verse 3. We've been blessed in Jesus Christ in heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Saints, to be a Christian in this world is to, to live as a pilgrim. Right? We have these blessings in heaven, but we're not in heaven yet. Every Sunday morning, I cut my laptop, I open it up, and I find out what happened overnight. What's going on in the world today? That's not a great way to start your day if you want to be encouraged, right? Full of gloom and doom, right? You think it can't get any worse, and then the next day it gets worse and worse and worse. So it seems... But our blessings are in heaven. And as we live in this world, we live as pilgrims, as resident aliens. We're present as salt and light, and we're to do good for the city while we're here. But we know, we don't set our hearts on this city, the city of man. As good as it can be, this side of the new heavens and new earth, it's not the new heavens and the new earth. It never will be until Christ returns in his second advent. You see, at the heart of following Jesus is to take up your cross. It's to find life by dying. By dying to a kingdom of self, by dying to self-interest, one finds one's life. It's a sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, the power of his resurrection. And while Christ has secured peace for us with God, Those in union with Christ are now at war with our own flesh, with the world around us, this ungodly system that's controlled by the God of this age, by the prince of the power of the air, and by the world itself, and by the devil. Beloved, our primary blessings reside on the other side of the Jordan, in the new heavens and new earth, in the world to come, in the resurrection from the dead. And because this is true, the Christian view of life is different. The way that you view your own death is different than the unbelieving, secular unbeliever in the world. For them, you eat, drink, and be merry. You you get what you can while you can. You step on whoever you have to to get where you need to get to. Because this is as good as it gets. 
That's why they're all in, right? These ideologies, these isms of the world, they're all in. All the chips are at the center of the table. When this world is all that you have, you have to play for keeps. That's why you're ruthless. Because your meaning, your identity is not given to you by your creator. No, you have to go out and create it existentially through some cause or some ideology or some ism. You have to define yourself, but in the word of God, God defines us. We know him, and in turn, we know ourselves. You see, for the Christian, we can view life and we can view death like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 37, that speaks about the believer and what he receives at death. The souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass to glory their bodies still being united to Christ, what are we told? We're told they, they rest in the grave. Now think about that. Think about all the saints who've lived. Their bodies are, are resting in the grave. While still being united to Christ, their spirits are absent of the body to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord, to, to die is gain. They're with Christ in heaven in this intermediate state while they wait for and they long for the resurrection of the dead. A corporeal existence and a new heavens and a new earth. You see, that's our hope. That's the Christian surety. You see, in the words of Paul, for the Christian there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You see, we need not fear death. Do you fear death? Do you fear the reality of closing your eyes for the last time? For the Christian, you close them, but then again you open them anew in the new heavens with Christ to be absent of the body but to be present with the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. So faith transcends or overcomes the grave. Well, secondly, pilgrim faith lives as an exile in the world. In the second half there of verse 13 through 15, the writer makes an important point. Notice the point he makes. Right? He, he makes the point that the believer's life as a pilgrimage, namely, presupposes something. And what is it that he presupposes? Namely, that we've left our first home. To go after this heavenly home, this better country, this hope of heaven, this city of God. He says that Abraham and the patriarchs, having seen and greeted the promises of God from afar, as a traveler looking out on the horizon, seeing the city there in the distance, longing for it, longing to get there with finality, we're told that they acknowledged that they were strangers. That is, they were foreigners, exiles, or, or pilgrims. For people who thus speak make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood themselves as strangers, as exiles, as those who are not for this world, right? They're, they're strangers, not merely someone from another place, this word strangers in the Greek, but rather one who doesn't quite fit in, the one who doesn't quite belong. It's like the kid in school who, who wears the clothes that no one else wears. He's not with the cool kids. He stands out. Well, the believer, likewise, stands out in this world as a, as a stranger, as a pilgrim, as Peter will say, as a peculiar people. That Jim there, he's a peculiar man. That Susie, man, she's peculiar, isn't she? Because they're aliens, they're, they're strangers, they're just passing through, they're on their way to somewhere else. This is not their home. And they've made it known, they've acknowledged, they speak it so to others. Others know this to be the case as they look at their lives. They, they see how they spend their money. They give their money to a God they cannot see and to a kingdom that's not fully here. Why do they do this? And they make noise and they utter words into the sky and they call it prayer. But where is their God that they speak of? You see, they're strange. They're exiles. They're, they're pilgrims. They're, let's just be honest, they're a little weird. First century, they cannibal, they're cannibalistic. You know, they eat the flesh and the blood. They take care of their own children and they take care of ours. Who are these strange creatures called Christians? They're strangers. They're exiles. They're pilgrims. This world is not their home. They're in the world, but they're not of it. Saints, by taking this designation to themselves, they were making it clear that they were seeking a homeland. You see, when God called, we know by faith Abraham obeyed and he left. He left the land of his fathers to go to this land of promise that he had not seen. He lived as a stranger, as an exile. And Abraham is commended for his faith in that he made no attempt to return. By faith, he counted everything loss. Have you counted everything loss? Right, that makes a nice t-shirt and a nice <laughs> bumper sticker. But is it your credo? Has all saints counted everything loss that they might gain Christ? Told that if he had been thinking about returning, and that is Abraham, he could have gone back to Iran. Remember when he arrives there in Shechem, I believe, in Genesis 12? Shortly thereafter, there's a, there's a famine. What does he do? Well, he, he, he's kind of asleep. He's not sure. He's unstable. But he has the promise of God. He remains in the land while he does go subsequently to Egypt and then subsequently lie about Sarah being his sister. We know that God has him by his own hand and will bring him back into the land. But he did not return to Haram. He did not return to the land of his fathers because he counted all as lost that he might gain Christ. He endured and persevered by keeping his eyes on the author and the finisher of his faith. Did he have perfect faith? No. 
Hardly, but by faith he endured. The saying goes that no one likes a quitter, right? If you begin something, you must finish it. If your last name's Bullock and you live in a Bullock household, if you start something, by, God, you're, by God's grace, you're going to finish it. You know, kids want to start, well, I want to play soccer. I want to do baseball. I want to do t-ball. I want to do this. I want to do that. That's fine. But if you start, we're going to finish it. Now, providentially, things could change that. But by God's grace, that's one of the things we try to adhere to. But no one likes a quitter. One of the worst things that can be said about someone who professes faith in Christ and then turns away and returns home is that they quit on Christ, that, that they gave up. It was too difficult. Kind of like Pliable there in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember Pliable and Obstinate saw Pilgrim leave the city of destruction? They get a little way and they get to the sloth of the spawn. And Obstinate says, no, I'm not in this. Is I'm out. He's out early. He leaves and goes back early. But Pliable will continue on. Because he has some idea, some inkling. He's tasted but has not partaken fully of the kingdom yet. So he begins and he falls into the sloth of despond and he, he vows that if I get out of this sloth of despond, I'm going back. And that's what, exactly what he does. We're told that he returned home. And Bunyan says his neighbors came out to visit him. Some called him wise for returning. Some called him a fool for endangering himself to begin with. Why were you so foolish to follow this whack job called Christian in going to this celestial city? Others mocked his cowardness. Surely we would have not been so cowardly to have given up because of just a few difficulties. You see, no one likes a quitter. Does anyone in the room this morning admire Lot's wife? Can I get a show of hands? I didn't think so. Or how about Israel when they're in the wilderness there in the book of Numbers? They get a little ways out, difficulty starts to come, it gets a little warm in the kitchen, because now you're in the kitchen. Now you're in the arena, Mr. Kennedy. Right? It's one thing to be a spectator at the, in the Colosseum. It's another thing to be on the field of the arena. And Israel was. And they begin to complain. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, remember the fish. Oh, my. The bluefin tuna there in Egypt. That cost us nothing. Do you remember the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, the garlic that we had there in Egypt? Oh, no one likes a quitter. How about Demas? How many of us want our sons to grow up to be Demas? Paul said this concerning him, Demas in love with this present age has deserted me. It got a little difficult. The charms of Vanity Fair, the siren call of this world had won his heart and he deserted Paul. Well, in contrast to these bad examples, now let's consider Peter, James, and John there in Luke 5. They're fishermen. They're there on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus calls to them, and we're told that they brought their boats to land and left everything and followed him. You see, they were willing to count all as lost to follow him because they, they set their heart on a, on a better country, on the king of the better country. 
that God himself was their very great reward. He was the pearl of great price that they were willing to go home to sell all hope for to have. See, the way you tell if you've truly understood what it means to call yourself a pilgrim or an exile is not just about what you say, but how you live. Could I watch your life for a week? Could I be a fly on the wall and watch your life and say, yeah, that guy's a pilgrim. That gal, she's an exile. She's a stranger. What would I see? What have you set your heart on? What have you spent your time and money on? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and where your heart is, there you will find your home. You see, Abraham and the patriarchs did not think themselves in terms of what they left behind. Right? We know that. Right? That's what, what Lot's wife, right? She's, she's like, she's caught in between. You can just see her there running on the plains, leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, looking double-minded, the word of God says. And what is a double-minded man, a woman, boy, or girl? They are what? They are unstable in all their ways. You cannot ride the fence, young person. You listen to me right now in 2024. You must make a decision. For time and history will make the decision for you if you do not. You see, they defined themselves based on where they were headed. They were a future-oriented people. Forgetting what's behind, as Paul says there, right, in Philippians, and pressing forward, onward, upward, to the higher calling in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian's motto. That's the way we live. They were glory-bound. They were bound for the city of God. You see, beloved, if you cannot leave behind your former life and the identities of this present evil age, then you cannot be Christ's disciples. I want to be crystal clear as we sit here on the cusp of 2024. Listen to Jesus as he speaks about this reality of leaving behind former realities or identities and unwilling to forsake them to Hook our wagon to Christ. Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world? All that the world has. All the riches, all the trinkets, all the shallowness, all the shrillness, all the emptiness that is this world. If you gain it all, what does it profit you to gain it and lose the most precious thing in all of the universe to the living God, which is the soul of his image bearers? Thirdly, pilgrim faith seeks a better country. It overcomes the grave. It identifies itself as an exile, as a pilgrim, as a stranger. Thirdly, it seeks a better country. Abraham was that merchant in Matthew 13, 45, 
who looking for fine pearls, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. When God called, Abraham answered. He took up his cross and he followed. Why? We're told in verse 16, he desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. You see, Abraham acknowledged that he was not at home, that his home was elsewhere. His home was with God in the city that God had prepared. And we've seen, and we're going to see throughout, Hebrews calls this, this home, this city, an eternal rest in Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 9.15, it's called an internal inheritance. In Hebrews 10.10, it's called a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In Hebrews 12.22, it's called Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in Hebrews 12.28, it's called a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is our inheritance. That is our reward. That is the carrot at the end of the stick. That's what motivates us. And God himself is there. And we're going to see him as David prayed, Daniel prayed. He's going to wipe away all the tears of affliction, this veil of tears that we call this present evil age, this exiled existence in this life. All those tears that we've accumulated are going to be wiped away. He's going to take his nail-scarred hands and he's going to wipe them from your face on that day. Because that's the kind of God our God is. A faithful God. You see, saints, we live by faith. We see beyond the grave to the better country. And when this better country fills your horizon, it transforms everything about you, particularly the light and momentary afflictions of this life as that is held out before you. Oh, pray that your pastor will bring before you every Lord's Day the weight of the glory of the kingdom of God. They might drown out all the siren calls of the world. You'll come here and be renewed and encouraged and refreshed and equipped to live a life worthy of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary. What is seen, unseen is eternal. We seek a city an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and will never fade away, that's kept for you in heaven, even as you're kept for it. You're going to make it, church, because he who began the good work in you is faithful. You're going to want to quit, maybe tomorrow morning, maybe this morning you want to quit, but God is faithful. Look to God, repent, and look to him. He will keep you. He hears our tears. He remembers our tears. He hears our cries for mercy, and he keeps us. You see, the patriarchs yearned and longed for this, acknowledging themselves as strangers and exiles in the world, and every true child of God will as well. And as if it couldn't get any better, the preacher tells us in the last half of verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that amazing that the living triune God would take upon his own identification the names of his people? Right? Who is this God? Moses, who are you? I am that I am. But notice what he said even before that. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You see, he takes the name of his people upon himself. 
So we stand here on the cusp of 2024. How are you going to live out this year? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to steward it? You don't know. Some of us might not be here at the end of, of 2024. You have no guarantee. And I thought to myself, who died this year in the congregation? I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. Rick would correct me if I'm wrong or, or mistaken. But I think, you know what? Each, with each and every passing year, the probability heightens. Some of us might not be here. So how will you finish? Will your faith overcome the grave? Does your faith motivate you and cause you to identify as an exile, as a peculiar people? Does your faith set its hope on a better country? Or are you so occupied and so consumed with this world that you never look up? Right? You're just consumed with the world, with all the noise that is this world. Let me close with an example of a saint in our congregation, this church, this particular church, who died on January 1st, 2018. He kept a memoir of uh, thoughts as he was preparing to cross the Jordan. And that's what we're all doing. It was just more acute for him. It was more existential because it, it was, it was, he was in the crosshairs. Death was coming. He knew he only had a matter of months to live. And he wrote this on August 26, 2017. He would die on January 1st, 2018. And this is what he says. It's hard for me to read it. I was struck that as far as I knew, I had never been as alive in Christ as I am today. Cancer's eating his body. It's metastasizing within him, within his gut. Organs are consuming themselves. Christ has drawn me close in this present time and in real ways. This is shown through sanctification. The heat actually turns up in the kitchen of affliction. Through thoughts and, and prayer, the word, the word preached, the fellowship and, and the prayers of the saints, giving thanks for more of his providence, providence, providence than I can remember. And most of all, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, it was real to him. God's Spirit bore witness in His Spirit that He was a Son. I'm probably just scratching the surface for sure, but you get the picture. As the Father draws me closer to home, He also infuses His Son in me in a precious way. How could anything that draws us closer to Christ in this life not be considered good as our perishable bodies decline. Christ is in all of the details of our lives and struggles. Though we pray for wisdom and the medical caregivers, 
Christ is intimately involved and produces wisdom from where we would not nor could not imagine. In your and my earthly travails, we would never want to get so caught up in the anxiety of them that we forget the overarching blessing that God gave us, not only in our creation, but in our regeneration. An effectual calling we have in Christ. We don't come to worship on Sunday morning downtrodden and defeated, but victorious in Christ. No matter our earthly state, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I need to read it and hear it myself. Life is too short to miss the beauty of what we have in Christ for a moment. He got it. An exile. A stranger. A peculiar man who's now beholding the very face of the Son of God. Will you not endure? Consider Jesus. He's better. Look and keep looking to the author and finisher of your faith. And fight everything and anyone that would discourage you to do something other. But surround yourself in 2024 with fellow pilgrims who will encourage you to fight the good fight. To finish the race. To not be ambivalent. We live in a culture of ambivalency, right? Indifference. Lethargy, right? Just, just kind of coasting along, doing just globs. That's not the picture of the Christian in the New Testament. Oh, may God give us grace to be all that he's called us to be, to be sons and daughters of the King. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the captain, the forerunner, who's gone into the Holy of Holies for us and has brought us near in him, that we can come boldly to that very same throne of grace in our time of need with thanksgiving and prayers and supplications. So, Father, we would pray that at the end of 2024, we as a people, individually, as households, and as a church, we would be more like Jesus come December 31st, 2024 lest you come before. We pray this in the name of the Son. Amen.